Hello and welcome everyone to another InventRight live stream. My name is Andrew Krause. I'm one of the co-founders here at InventRight. I'll be doing a full hour of Q&A to answer your questions about licensing so you can rent or lease your idea, not sell, because that's not what licensing is, to a big company and receive royalties. All right, so um, if a few of you could type in uh, yes, that you can hear me just to confirm, that's always a good idea. I see a lot of people already have some questions. Um, so. Every week when we do these Q&As, we have a, a kind of a side theme. So I'm going to answer everybody's questions, but I'm going to maybe uh, go off on a tangent a little bit on that side theme on that question or something related to it. So we liked it. We did fear. We did a lot of different topics. But today is going to be your success plan. So um, obviously, you know, you ask a question in a particular area. I'm not going to like ramble on about your entire success plan um, for doing everything to do with licensing. But I'm going to try to weave in your success plan. That's our theme today and answering your guys' questions. And it just makes it a little bit more interesting. Let's see if anybody typed in yes. Okay, great. A bunch of people typed in yes. You don't need to do that anymore. We're good. There's a couple times where my audio, the mic wasn't working or whatever. So or YouTube was tripping out. So it's always good to check. All right. So really quickly, um, what we handle here at InventRight is licensing. So you don't need to start a business. You don't need to raise money. You don't need to hire employees. That big company is their money. It's their distribution. It's their employees. But you need to be able to do a deal with a big company so they can take it from there. That's what we're going to be talking about today. We do not specialize in you making and selling the product yourself. Uh, I haven't found that for most inventors, not all, but most inventors, when you get into the weeds of licensing versus venturing, venturing being a fancy way of saying make it and sell it yourself, licensing is the path most inventors choose. They're just not aware of the differences. Those are your two main paths. We're the licensing path, which I, in my biased point of view, is the right path for most inventors, but not all. The other path is perfectly valid, but we're going to be focusing on licensing here today and every day. Um, welcome to an entertain venturing questions, put in the context why licensing might be better in this area, or saying, hey, well, in this aspect, well, venturing might be better too. I'm happy to talk about that. But we are a company that guides people to license. So let's jump in. Um, Mike Gee said, how can someone find out um, if their product can even be manufactured and at what price point? I, Mike's a regular here, so I'm surprised he kind of asked that because we get asked that almost every time. And I kind of give this the same answer. Um, you, In order for you to license a product, if a company looks at your product and goes, I have no idea how we would make that, and or, oh my God, yeah, we could make that, but it's we're going to have to charge $500 and we don't think people will pay more than $24.95 for it. That's a problem. So you need to know that you can make it and make it at a reasonable price. Now, fortunately... Um, I can give you some techniques where you're going to realize that you don't need to be a manufacturing expert. You don't need to have any manufacturing background and you can make some pretty safe assumptions that it can be made and can be made at a reasonable price, but also how to figure out, oh, maybe it can't. So let's say I was using the kitchen cutting board example. Let's say you've got a, I don't know what those things are made out of. Are they made out of melamine or whatever? It's like that plasticky kind of like somewhat soft you put a knife into it anyway let's say it's a cutting board out of that material okay and this is my this is the silly example that i've been giving lately when i talk to people just it's not an invention we came up with or anything it's just a silly example um because if you could come up with too good of an invention then people get distracted by the invention so trying to come up with an example that's really not that good of an invention so that um People aren't distracted by the invention itself. So let's say it's a cutting board and it will rest on top of the sink. Okay, so it's resting on top of the sink. So there's some space between the bottom of the sink and top of the sink on the edges, right? You've seen cutting boards like that before. And in the center, there's a hole. And so you're going to chop your vegetables and you're going to push it down. That hole's right above the garbage disposal. So it falls right in the garbage disposal. So you don't need to push your vegetables over to the garbage disposal. Okay, so let's say that's your idea. You're like, well, I don't know if this thing can be made, made a reasonable price. My immediate knee-jerk reaction is, of course it can. All right, so there's other, let's say you want to make that that cutting board out of that material that they make cutting boards out of quite frequently, that plasticky kind of soft plastic. I don't know, it's called melamine. I'm not sure what that's called, but it doesn't matter. OK, 
Okay. I mean, they make them out of bamboo. They make them out of other things too. But let's say you got that white cutting board and you see one that has like a little, a little extension, little metal extension. So it can go over the sink, right? It's not just on the countertop, but it's over the sink. So you're like, oh, okay. The ones that are out of that material and they go over the sink. I noticed there's like six companies selling those. There's probably like 20, but and they're tending to range in price from $19.95 to $34.95, okay? And what's my change? Well, I'm cutting a hole in the center. So do you think they can do that? Yeah, I think so. Um, so done. Manufacturing research done, okay? So, and, you know, that's a very simple product, but I've helped a lot of our students do that with very complex products well as well. Now, you don't, now with the cutting board, you know 100%, you're like, I know this could be done. Okay. There's other products where you're like, eh, I'm like 70, 80, 90% sure. That's good enough. Then you're like, only, I don't know, maybe 20% sure. Okay, maybe not. Maybe that's an issue. You need to do more research on the manufacturing of it. But so what am I saying here, guys? A lot of times you can just look at similar products that are on the market and you can make assumptions about whether or not your product can be done. And you're not 100% sure, but you're sure enough. And that the vast majority of the time on most of our students' products is good enough. Is it always good enough? No. Sometimes you need to do more advanced stuff, but most of the time that is good enough. So I won't get in depth with the other techniques because I'll take up like 40 minutes to talking about more advanced techniques. But the fact that I'm saying most of the time that works for our students where you use logic and you have no background in, in manufacturing whatsoever, that by looking at other things now, the other tip that I'll give is sometimes it's things that aren't even in that area. Let's say it's a kitchen product, but you're pulling, well, there's that other thing over there and it has about that same amount of metal and it's made and I'm just gonna add a hinge to it and that's selling for so-and-so, so I know it can be made. It might not even be the same product category. It doesn't have to be the same product at all, you know, and you can make these assumptions and use common sense, okay? Um, now, the other thing that people get into sometimes is like, oh, this is somewhat of a technical product you see like six or seven people selling it, but you're all you're doing is adding a hinge over here. And you have no freaking idea how the PCB board is programmed for the electronics. Who cares? There's eight companies selling this that have more or less the same features. The product's typically selling for $49.95 to around $60. And your piece is you put a hinge on it that makes it uh, lift up at an angle on the countertop, whatever the hell this thing is, right? And so you don't need to know all that. You don't need to know how the board is programmed. You need to you don't need to know all those things. Okay. So that's another kind of a kind of tip. If I get too in depth with some of this stuff, guys, I won't answer all your questions. So let's jump into another one. Thank you, Mike. Great question. Alex says, uh, "Hi. What, what was the theme today? Oh, your success plan." So, um, so Mike, I think your success plan with regards to that, we're doing a theme with, um, with regards to answering these Q and A's. Um, work on products where you can do that sort of, of, of research. And for the ones that you can't, maybe you put those on the shelf a little bit, get some experience with a nice simple one where you can literally just look at other things and go, I know they can make this. I don't know how to make it. I can't make a prototype, but I know they can make it. And that might be a success plan for some people there. Okay. Alex Ross said, hi, Andrew. Thanks for the, ho I hope you guys uh, give me at what point in the negotiation with potential licensees does a need for independent patent search come up? How do I get them to pay for that? Um, most of our students, when they're closing deals, they're not doing that. Um, when, when our students reach out to companies, they file a provisional patent. Um, and... They've, they've done definitely done a market search and hopefully done some sort of basic patent search. A lot of them haven't because, hey, if the company's not interested in the product, what, what, what good does a patent do you anyway? But before you reach out, it's good to do definitely a thorough market research and a quick patent search. But the patents are rarely a problem. Um, people file patents that don't make sense. They aren't manufacturable. Um, people will see patents that have been filed and go, oh, that that's my idea. And then you look at the claims and, okay, that claim's not a problem, that claim's not a problem, that claim's not a problem. They're just hooking that on the, the fence and that's not a problem. And okay, and, and so once you break it down, 
people don't patent inventions. This is the layman's way. I like to say attorneys don't say it this way. I'm going to say it because people understand it when I say it this way. You don't patent your invention. You patent pieces of, a, pieces of it that have functionality and utility. And you're, you're claiming certain things in the patent with something called claims, where I'm going to protect this. And I'm going to protect this feature and this feature. So when you see prior patents that you think are an issue, look through the claims. And literally nine and a half times out of 10, when our students do that, these other patents are not an issue. Okay. Um, invention promotion companies take advantage of inventors this way. They, they, they say, oh, well, we'll do a patent search for you. And the inventor's like, great, yeah, that's the first thing, patents, patent search. And, and they come back and they do a half-assed patent search or the attorney that they sent them off to did. And they're like, well, we couldn't find anything. And now the inventor is coming to a false assumption. Oh, you couldn't find anything, so therefore it's a good idea. What? You did a patent search, you couldn't find anything was a problem, so therefore it's a good idea. <laughs> Doesn't mean it's marketable or licensable or that it makes any sense whatsoever. You just, and, and it also means that it probably didn't have a thorough search, but even if they did have a thorough search, it doesn't validate your idea by doing a patent search. Um, so there, I'm going off tangents there. That's not directly answering Alex's question. Who, Alex, I think I talked to you on Friday. That was cool. Um, so when is a time for a patent search? <clears throat> I think when you get a lot of interest, let's let's see, you did a market search. You did a, you did a, you did some patent searching. I don't see anything that's an issue. You did your sell sheet. You reached out to companies, and um, now you're getting some traction. You know that might be a good time to do a more thorough patent search. Um, we we have trainings in our membership site to show our students how to do patent searches, so that's great. So you can take a look at that. Um, but there is something called indemnification. So and not all licensing contracts will have it, and so. One of the, the common indemnification, it's definitely not in all the contracts or students sign, but um, it's in these companies will put it in some that you're they're indemnifying you against manufacturing defects. So let's say they put lead and uh, little kids licking the lead and get sick that's in the paint or something. You are not liable for mistakes they make in manufacturing with the product. Now, one indemnify that's an indemnification. They're indemnifying you against any manufacturing things. And then you're indemnifying them against any patent infringement. Quite often it's not in the contract, but sometimes it is. So if there's an indemnification clause and it says that you're liable for any patent infringement, that's when you really kind of step up and do a patent search. Is that something that we're really focusing on or super concerned about with closing deals? No, we're trying to close the deal, okay? Um, that's more important. But that would be a time if a company you get to the point where a company sends a contract and there's an identification clause that you're identifying them against any patent infringement um, that you would want to do a more thorough search. Is it an important part of closing a deal? Not really. Um, just to give you a perspective. Uh, is it important? Yeah, it's important, but closing the deal is a lot more important. Is it ever an issue? I can't remember one case where we found something that was an issue. I'm sure our negotiation coach, Paul, would tell you, oh yeah, it was with one or two or something, but it's it's very rare. It's rarely an issue. So hopefully that that helps you out, Alex. It was great talking to you. I think it was on Friday I talked to you. Um, Veronica said, I signed up for the 10-step program. My plan is to get it, my head around the process and get to the point where I have a sell sheet to show a coach and then sign up for coaching. Okay. So maybe you, you signed up for the um, the $29 uh, membership, 10-step membership, just access some access to some of the trainings. Um, so she's saying, what about if I give it my best shot at the sell sheet and then get a coach? Well, you can do that. You'll probably go back and end up doing more work because I would say 95% of our new students, a lot of them haven't done a sell sheet, but when they have, it's not good enough. Usually it's pretty bad. Um, or it's just okay. You don't want just okay. Um, and it's bad in a couple different areas. It's bad sometimes because it's not based in facts. You did a marketing piece, but you didn't base it on everything else that's in the marketplace. You didn't do step number one and properly study the marketplace and look at what else is out there and see how your product fits in and take a little bit of marketing from this one that has kind of a similar feature and a little over here and do a little bit of your own marketing in certain areas. Um, it's Most people don't do that. So if you feel like you're going to get way ahead of the game by doing a sell sheet, 
Um, try to do your research as best as you can and then do the sell sheet. It could be very crude. I would definitely not pay a graphic designer to do a sell sheet because we're pretty much guaranteed the coach is going to bloody it and make sure make you change a bunch of stuff. And then our design department can change that for you. Um, but um, I, I would, I, I'd say there's nothing wrong with that. If you've, you know, I think it's okay. You can struggle on your own a little bit with it. But if a coach can just be like, okay, let's make sure the marketing's great. Let's make sure the graphic design, virtual prototype is great if you need one. And let's just get that done. That could happen very fast. So I don't know how much time you'll save, um, but it's something you could do that if you wanted to. Um, I think it's kind of a case by case basis. So uh, your success plan, because that's our theme today, right? Your success plan is um, it's okay to play around with stuff yourself, but it, it's also great when you can get a professional that just does this day in and day out to get you up to speed. And I think that that respects your time because time is money. And the quicker you can get to being a pro, the, the better. Um, but there's also nothing wrong with trying to play around with something. But here's the thing. If, you're, if you stay on your own, don't assume you're doing it right. Don't assume you did your research right. Don't assume you did your sell sheet right. Um, and the reason why I'm saying that is because I, when I see stuff from people that aren't students, most of the time it's wrong. It's not always really, really wrong, but a lot of times it's really, really wrong. And then sometimes it's like, okay, I'm like, you're gonna reach out to 30 companies with something that's okay, that, that's not gonna get you the traction. And then you're like thinking it's not working and it's not working because you're not doing the right things. So that would be, kind of a bit my six because the theme today is your success plan and i'm just answering questions within that context um scott says how does one go about seeking advice and advancement for for many ideas uh an nda with an improvements clause including the ideas one at a time focusing on the lowest hanging fruit through invent right or mark p okay well wow, that, that's kind of a confusing question so i'll answer it as best as i can i mean it's just a lot of stuff together. How does one, let's go to the first part. How does one go about seeking advice and advancement for many ideas? Well, the first thing you do is you got to pick one to work on, get experience with licensing, and then you can work on multiple at a time. When you're new to this, you should not be working on multiple at a time. Our students that have got experience, we have many students that are working on two, three, four, five, ten at a time. Okay. And if you have simple products or you're just really gung-ho, that's very doable. But if you come out of the gate with multiple, you will fail, you'll get confused, you'll get overwhelmed, you'll, you'll make all of those mistakes and triplicate. If you can go through it with one, that's what we do with our students. We, we tell our students, look, you can work on multiple during a membership with us, but you gotta focus on one right now. And then once you got that experience, once you get to the reaching out phase, and you're not done reaching out, you don't have to wait. You're like, okay, every Monday and Tuesday I'll reach out. And then the rest of the week, I'll work on a new product. And then when Monday or Tuesday rolls around, I'm working on the older product and I'm reaching out and I'm not neglecting that older project. So it's totally okay to work on multiple. But if you're new to this, um, Scott, I would not work on multiple at all. I would cherry pick the ones like you're saying here, the low hanging fruit. Um, but I don't understand what you're talking about. NDA with improvements clause. If you're talking about sending multiple versions of the same idea to a company, um, no, that's not applicable to NDA with an improvements clause. You're just going to freak the company out. I know we were talking about on some past live sessions about NDAs with improvements clause. That's for the most part, that's for vendors. Like a vendor is going to do some engineering for you or do some graphic design work for you or something like that. And then it's applicable. It can be applicable in certain situations with the companies, but man, you can freak a company out if you go, here's my NDA and I own any improvement on it. They're like, well, we're working generally in this area. You know, I mean, what your, your protection is you're going to file a provisional on what you're doing and that's going to protect you. So some of you may, it's a little bit more advanced, not know what I'm talking about, but hopefully some of you do. So Scott, um, my success plan for you, because that's the theme today, is to focus on um, one product right now. Once you get your feet wet and you really kind of feel like you understand the process by working on that one product, then you can work on multiple. And I agree with you. Go for the low-hanging fruit. Um, and yeah, I'm biased. You know, go through InventRight. Get a coach. Um, make sure we do and say you, you do and say everything right by having the coach guide you on it. Every email, every phone call. Um, Margie said, hi, Andrew. I was on the Zoom call with Tom Zarr and he emailed 
and emailed him the next day with my sell sheet and video. He responded that he liked my product based and asked if it's patented and whether uh, the name I gave the product is trademarked. Are patents and trademarks required for QVC? I have a PPA and no registered trademark. However, I did check the USPTO today and found someone. Um, yeah, see, this is a perfect example of like a potential licensee says something and you think that's what it's all about to them and it's not, okay? Um, now you're like, how should I go about answering Tom? So good question. So um, Tom was on and he's with, uh, we did a, through one of our other organization, IGA, Inventor Groups of America, we'll have speakers on. He came on, he's with Media One. And they represent like Dyson and some very Martha Stewart and some very big people to get their products onto QVC. QVC is just a retailer. That's all they are. They're a retailer like Walmart or Lowe's or Home Depot. They're just an electronic retailer. It's a never ending infomercial. But unlike infomercials, they care more about their customers. They really, really do. Um, because QVC stands for quality, value, and convenience. They want those repeat purchases. People will go on there and just watch with no particular need. And they'll go, oh, damn, I, now I know I need that. And they like trust the hosts. Like they, they watch the hosts on this never ending infomercial. They watch for the particular hour. They like Sally or whoever the host is and they'll watch it. Um, it's 90% women on QVC. Um, and this, this stereotype that all the women are couch potatoes is not true. Tom was dispelling that myth, but it's 90% women. So Margie, I, I think that with regards to licensing, um, QVC is just a retailer. So when we do, when we did that thing, I was worried that a lot of people are like, I wasn't worried. I was just like, people need to get the context. The way you license to QVC is to license to a company that's on QVC. Just like the way you license and get your product in Walmart is licensed to a company in Walmart. Maybe they're in Home Depot and they're in William and Sonoma too or whatever. I'm just giving random retailers. So they're a retailer. So now he's probably got all these inventors like approaching him going, I want to get into QVC. And these, if these people are licensing, Tom's not the right guy for you. Tom wants a manufactured product that is ready to go that he can show to QVC. And you probably need hundreds of thousands of dollars to do that just on a very, like the very least. I mean, like even if you're launching like a, a six cent product that's gonna cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like, so Steven, our other co-founder, he did these little guitar picks in the shape of Mickey Mouse and skulls. And it's the only product he ever ventured. And they sold in a, a three pack for $2.99. He manufactured for six cents a piece. Once he started getting some orders, they had put 200,000 into the company. It wasn't enough on a six cent product. So you need to know, like, it's nice that you meet somebody like Tom that really, wow, he's a really nice guy and he has connections and stuff. But if you're not ready to venture the product, then it's not really a connection for you. Now, again, when you license, you don't need Tom. You don't need to manufacture a product or get a trademark and get a patent now because you thought Tom liked your product. You know, you can license it to a company that is already selling in QVC, you know? So the fact that he's asking, do you have a patent? Do you have a trademark? And now you feel like you need to run out and get a trademark. So what I would say is I have a common law trademark, which is just doesn't cost you anything. You just put a circle and a TM around it and talk to him about the product. But to change your whole business model, your business model licensing, because you saw Tom on there, and now I'm going to mortgage my house and home to start a business because Tom was interested, because this is what happens on QVC. If, if, you, if they're like, oh, yeah, I want you to deliver this many orders, if it doesn't sell, they're sending it all right back to you. And if you don't have a formal business, you're going to have nowhere to sell it. You're going to have a garage full of inventory, right? So, but if you're a, a big company and you're selling on QVC here and there, you, you put some stock in the, the QVC warehouse, you go on live and it doesn't sell well, you're like, okay, send it on back and they're going to send it to the other, other retailers. But you as an inventor can get yourself into real trouble there. So, um, so just have a talk with them about it. I would just say, look, yeah, it's a, I got a common law trademark and I have a provisional patent, you know, and just tell them that. But I think once he realizes you don't, I don't know what your situation is, but let's say you haven't spent two cents on this thing. You're not set up to venture. He wants somebody to go, give me 10,000 units or 
even a thousand units or two thousand units so I can sell it over here. Are you going to do that? You know, and if you if you're not, and should you just because a guy that works as a kind of a, a go between between QVC and an an inventor, he mostly works with big companies, but we brought him on. I mean, he's working with like Dyson, Martha Stewart, and all these companies, and that's impressive. But does that mean you should risk all that money? Hell no, you know. But we don't we don't feel like at InventRight that when we do these IGA meetings that we're going to be we're going to go hey our students or our fans aren't sophisticated enough to handle that. But I do worry about that because like if you're going to like the fact that he asked for a trademark and I'm not saying you're going to do this. I'm giving an example because I've seen people do this now run out and get a trademark thinking that will make him happy. That won't make him happy. You know, if he realizes you don't have money to put together to start a business and should you do it? Not necessarily, you know, probably not. Um, but it's something you can consider. So let's see. Uh, so my so our theme today is um, your success plan. So your success plan, Margie, is if your model is licensing, you know, um, I mean, you could tell him, look, maybe one of his vendors that he knows he could license it to them and then they can sell it in qvc and everywhere else you know so that's something to think about a little bit of a success plan for you um yesterday's news tomorrow is their handle when i file my non-provisional i'd like to file it and launch and send other pct countries such as india the uk thoughts on filing and launching simultaneous to to max 12 months um you know, most of our students aren't file aren't like licensing around the world, and that's not really realistic. Um, when you file a, a provisional patent, you can later file a PCT, a patent cooperation treaty um, document, and you can then file in other countries. Um, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. I have talked to so many inventors that got wrapped up in that PCT thing, and they've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars, and and I looked at the product and I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. So and that's somebody focusing too much on patents. But what I like, which I think what they're hinting at is the U.S. is a PCT country. You can file a U.S. provisional, start shopping it around. If you feel as legs in India and other countries and things you could license. I don't find that Indian companies that are just in India um, they're more likely just to knock it off, just being honest. Um, you know, but if it's companies that sell in the US and and Canada and Europe, those are companies you want to license to. If it's an Indian company that was big in the US, that's the same as a US company to me. But to license to a company in India that's just in India, there's not a lot of respect for intellectual property in India. I think thinking that your uh, Indian patent is going to protect you there is um, not accurate. Um, now, I'm not saying you couldn't license in India, but licensing to one really big company in the U.S. And then if they're not selling in India, you can re re retain the rights for those other countries and try to license there. I think that's great. But I think it's it's very rare. It's a, it's fairly rare. Um, it's not bursting your guys' bubble. I think it's just real, you know. But there are very big Asian companies that have headquarters as well in the U.S., and you can license to them, and I wouldn't worry about that. But to license to a Chinese company that only sells this type of product in China, really? You're going to do that? Does that make sense? I don't think so. Um, I'm not, again, there might be an instance where it makes sense, but then you're a little delusional on the fact that these companies really respect intellectual property in these other countries. And the US and Canada and Europe is pretty good, but even here we have problems. I haven't had a student in 23 years that I'm aware of that reached out to a potential licensee, a company that's selling in the US or and or Canada or and or Europe, and then the company knocked them off. So that's very safe. So that's the opposite side of what I'm saying. But to think that you're going to license the US and every country in Europe and India and China and Africa, and I'm like, and you're going to fall, and because of that, you're going to spend two, three, four hundred thousand dollars on patents. You better get some good advice before you do that. Is there some instance where it might make sense on certain isolated products? Yes. Does it make sense on most? Now, what you're saying is very smart. You're saying, what I'm saying too is you could file your provisional. You got an entire 12 months, and then you could later file a PCT, and you're like, oh, I got no traction in those countries, so I'm not going to file there. I only spent 60 bucks on my provisional. 
Is that a smart thing to do? Yeah, of course, sure it is. But some of these countries, you're just never going to license. You know, let's be honest. Um, okay. <laughs> Teresa said polyethylene, Andrew. Um, that's from earlier. We were talking about cutting boards. Um, Stanley just says, interesting, dot, dot, dot. Thank you, Stanley. Um, Derek Dunbar, one of the software guys at my work was asking me if he could license software he's making. I told him I had no idea, but I'd ask tonight. You can absolutely license software, and he would be the right guy to do it. But if you're not a software geek, I basically don't advise it the vast majority of the time. If you're in the software business or you're a software geek, you can license software. But the problem is you get like grandma, grandpa, or any of us, and we don't have any programming background. And this does, this applies to like an app. We were like, we use apps all day long. We use apps on our phones. We use apps on our iPad or Android. Oh, I have an idea for an app, right? The problem is the software geeks go, well, that's all great. That's an I your idea, but that's going to take six guys in a room to program, and you can't speak their language. So people think that's true of other areas, and it's not. You could be doing a, um, a, a lawn mowing device. You could be doing a kitchen product. You could be doing a medical product, and they don't think that. But the software geeks do. They're a pain in the ass. Good luck licensing anything to Microsoft or Google. It ain't going to happen. Now, if you, if you have a software app on a phone, there's a ton of smaller companies that do apps on the phone. But the problem is you don't speak their language. So they're kind of like, they're kind of like, well, yeah, that's, dude, that's going to take six guys in a room to program. They also don't pick up their phone. They don't respond to emails. It's, it's terrible. Now, if you were in the software industry and you really understood and you could speak their language, I think if you're a software guy, you can license software products. You could work on apps or different software. I think it's very doable. But if you're not in the software business, I wouldn't recommend working on apps or software. I totally wouldn't. But if he's in the software business, you said he's a um, he's a software guy. Yeah, he can totally do that. But I don't recommend it for most other people. I'd recommend sticking to consumer or commercial or industrial products. And the range of products you can license is mind-boggling. It's amazing. Um, Jay, Jay, wonderful successes they're handled. Genius is achieved not when there is more to add, but when there is nothing left to take away. Ooh, I think we're all going to need to ponder on that one. Um, nothing left to take away. Interesting. I, I could I could get into that. I don't know if I'm smart enough to, but I'm, I have some thoughts. But then if I misspeak, you guys are going to be like, that's not what he means, Andrew. So I'm going to move on from that one. But thank you, Jay. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, Harry said, I hope I'm not too late. No, you can join anytime, Harry. No worries. No worries. We, we do these from 4.30 to 5.30 Pacific. What would that be? 7.30 to 8.30 Eastern. Um, every Monday, except when I'm on a vacation or something like that. Uh, oh, yeah. Thank you, um, Will. If everybody, there's way more people that are on than giving me a thumbs up. So I'm spending a whole hour to answer your guys' questions. If you could give me a thumbs up, I'd really highly appreciate that. And um, as usual, I'll just sit here and stare until I get those thumbs up. I'm still staring. I'm not seeing them yet. There is a delay, though. So maybe I need to Okay, well, I'm just kidding. Um, I say that every time. Anyway, if you guys if you guys appreciate this, please give, give me the thumbs up. And down below, click on the uh, subscribe button and click on the notification button if you want to get notified of these um, these live streams. Um, what's the point of having a design patent if someone can take the patent and change it a little and file their patent? Please, I need help. Savage is their handle. So design patents can be very problematic. And design patents um, are not like utility patents. They're literally just a picture. And so, yeah, you, if you have this picture, like let's say if you have this picture of this razor blade and they just changed it a little bit, you can quite often get around a design patent because there's no talking about, oh, it's doing this and it's doing that. None of that. It's literally a freaking picture. Now, there are some very clever uses of design patents. We're not going to get into that right now. But for the vast majority of you, for most of your products, I would not file a design patent. I would not go, well, this is the design patent. You make it look a little different, and now they're no longer in violation of it. Now, there are clever 
situations in which that works, but I'm not going to get deep into that because almost none of you are ever going to need to file a design patent, nor do I recommend it most of the time, but it can make sense in isolated incidences when that shape, it's just like that. And if you changed it, it wouldn't work as well, right? It can make sense in isolated incidents, um, but most of the time it's not going to. Most of you guys, and what also there is no provisional design patent. So you got to file a full design patent, which is cheaper than a utility, but it's a full patent. You know, where as opposed to a provisional, you can fish off the pier and it's $60 and you can claim functionality and stuff like that, which you cannot with a design patent. So um, yeah, I, I, I most of the time it doesn't make sense. Um, I'll give you an example, like this is probably not the best example, but let's say it's the tread pattern for Nike on the bottom of a shoe. And it's the, it's, let's say it's Adidas and, or Nike and it's the logo, right? And you're showing that on the bottom of the shoe. Well, if it was a little bit different, they couldn't do that. You know, I'm not, I don't know if that's really the best example. I should probably come back with more examples of design patterns, but if, if it doesn't look just like that and it won't work, then design patent could be amazing, but that's not the case 99 times out of 100 of most of the stuff you guys are working on. So that's the best way I can go without doing a whole hour on design patents and showing tons of examples and stuff, which I don't have at the ready right now. Um, all right, well, I, everybody still hasn't given me a thumbs up. I could use a few more. For those of you that didn't, that would be really appreciated. Uh, don't wait till I, I'm gonna answer your questions. If you're like, hey, you didn't answer my question yet. I'm not giving them a thumbs up. You know, I don't, I don't know what I just, who I turned into there, but um, <laughs> uh, CYSM Creative Me is their handle. I've had problems going through the, through IDME on the, the USPTO website and wanted to apply for my provisional patent on my own, but I can't. Um, so the patent office does not train you how to use their website. And so when you haven't done that before, it can be very confusing. But our students all day long, they use our smart IP software. And then it poops out instructions at the end in the PDF. And it says, here's how you're going to file it at the patent office site. Um, one thing that I can say that you guys are probably going to be surprised I say this. I know that patent office is a government organization, but they're actually completely funded with our taxpayer dollars. They're actually a lot more helpful. I don't want to be critical of other government organizations because there might be some that are helpful, but we've all had experiences where we didn't feel like a government organization was helpful. Let's be real here. Um, if you call the 800 number, or if you're international, you call the patent office with a non-800 number, because the 800 number won't work if you're international. Um, and you and you get the office of independent inventors. You just ask for help, I'm an independent inventor, where can I go for help? You will be surprised. Say, I'm really struggling filing my provisional patent, and they will help you. I was on with this um, one student of ours that was extremely not tech savvy. And I told her this and she's like, oh my God, Andrew, I was on with them for over an hour, not promising they're gonna do that for you. And this guy was so patient with me because I'm so incompetent on the computer they were saying. And so don't be surprised if you call them and ask them for help if you're having a hard time filing a provisional patent application. I think using our smart IP software will help because it will give you instructions and then you'll have written it properly. But the patent office does not give you instructions on how to write it. That's just filing it and uploading it. So there's, there's, they're, they're, they can't do that, I guess. Um, but our so smart IP software does that. You can get that on inventright.com. We've had a lot of people getting that lately. It's only 99 bucks. So, um, and then you get, if you're a student of ours, you get unlimited use version of it. Um, Nama said, are there special coaches for people living outside the U.S. Do coaches also negotiate with potential companies on behalf of the inventors. So we've we've been mentoring and coaching students in 65 countries. Um, we're always able to accommodate. So for instance, um, in Australia, we're always going to be talking their morning and our afternoon, you know, the next day. They're there the next day in the morning. And so we're always able to, we've never had a student in a different country where we couldn't accommodate but there is a sometimes a smaller window, like, oh, we're gonna have to talk to you early evening or this time or that time. So they're not special coaches. Um, we did have Judy who is fluent in Spanish that if somebody was bilingual and they like speaking some Spanish could do that. And she's not with us anymore, but we do have Paul, our negotiations coach that does speak some Spanish. So he, if he needs a little bit of help, 
Um, but um, if somebody doesn't speak English, we can't help them. If their English is not that great, we've helped a lot of people where it's like, okay, we, but it has to be good enough for when you're watching training videos and you're talking to your coach, you're getting it. Sometimes people, when it's not their first language, they'll say yes, but they didn't get it. So we tell them, don't say that. Don't say yes. Yes, yes. Don't say that. Say, can you say that again? You know, um, so we can help people with, with uh, moderately good English, not great, but not really, really poor. Um, but we've helped people with, with all over the map. Um, so that's not a problem at all. Um, and then with regards to negotiations, when you get interest, we put you on with Paul and then Paul guides you through the negotiation, not on your behalf. It's more like, here's how to reply to that email. Oh, you got a phone call coming up with them. This is what I advise you to say on this call. And it's back and forth, typically one to three months for typical negotiations. So Paul will tell you exactly what to say on every call. He'll say, I think they're going to say this. And if they do say this, and because it's like, a phone call, three or four emails, a phone call. You can always lean on us and he'll tell you exactly what to do. He'll debrief you after the calls, but we're not on the call and we're not doing the negotiation for you. We're not an adventure promotion company. And, you know, I like that better, actually. It doesn't hurt our students ever. It does not. And also now you're like, holy crap, I can do this. My, I can do this now. Maybe next time or the time after I can negotiate a contract. I can discuss these deal points. So we're not just about helping our students close deals. If you go to our inventions for sale page on inventright.com, you see tons of our students' products currently on the market. But we're about empowering people. So if we said, oh, we'll call you when we do the deal done, you wouldn't learn anything. you know. And it will not hurt you with regards to doing the deal because licensing deals, it's like a little, it's like a phone call, a couple emails, another phone call. You know, It's a little bit here and there. It's no one big meeting you have to be all nervous about. Not at all how licensing works. We have people that had no negotiation, no sales experience, no business background, huge number of our students. You guys can do this, okay? So hopefully that was helpful. Um, do, do, do. Let's see what next one. Let's do kind of a speed round because we got about 16 minutes left because I want to make sure to get to everybody. So all those of you that didn't give me the thumbs up, maybe some people attended and then they left. If you could give me a thumbs up, I still don't have even numbers for as many people that are on. And it's made me feel to give me a thumbs up. Some people don't stay the whole time. So that number should actually be higher. And it's not. And I'm very upset about it. Anyway, uh, <laughs> um, Brian said, Andrew was researching patents surrounding my idea. P&G, Procter & Gamble, the assignee, has a patent that is expired due to non-payment of fees. Should I still move forward with my idea that is relatively similar? So, um, yeah, I mean, when you see an expired patent, and you've got something that's an improvement. That expired patent is now public domain. Anybody can do that. But if you're like, hey, okay, this patent's expired, and I've got mine's like it, like 90% like it, but I've got this little extra thing, then you can get protection of that little extra thing, and it's totally licensable. I wouldn't overthink why they abandon it. Maybe it didn't make sense, or it just they didn't figure out a marketing solution. PNG files tons of patents. Quite often that don't make sense. Somebody might have filed it. If you currently today look at the marketplace and look at all the products and you're like, this product would fit in. It has a clear benefit. I can make a marketing piece or we can help you make a marketing piece. I know somebody can. That's going to make sense. Then go ahead and file a provisional patent and move forward and don't worry about that prior art. Like I said, it's almost never an issue for our students. Patent attorneys won't make you believe that, but it's almost never an issue. So um, Scott said, I need help sifting through numerous ideas in order to pick the low-hanging fruit. We, we do that with our, with our coaches. We'll do that with our students. Um, but they won't, they're not wizards, people. Like, so if Scott was a student of ours and he's like, hey, I got these five ideas. Tell me which one to work on. He, he, the coach will be like, well, show me what research you did. Well, here's a little bit about this and this one and this one. So let's say Scott did a decent research on three of those. And they're like, well, based on that research, I have enough to work on, the coach might say. Here are the upsides and downsides of number one, number two, and number three. But these other two, I need you to find this information. I need you to tell me everything else in the space. I can't give you an answer unless you give me 
the the research and what is else is out there and then i can tell you and then i can go oh and you thought scott you thought number four was the bomb and number two is really good and the coach is like no it's number three and number five and here's why here's what's really cool i love it when we get our students with this sort of thing because when a coach can guide you on a real life project and tell you the upsides and downsides of the project with regards to licensing and go, this is the better project than this one. This one's doable, but this one's not, it could be better. It could have more or less potential. It could be an easier first project to work on or a harder first project. Like you thought this product was the bomb and the coach is like, that's a brutal first project. This one has just as much potential It's way easier. Why? Well, here, here, here's why. Oh, well, that's what you're evaluating it on. When you can learn to evaluate your products, which most inventors suck at this, and they work on projects where they got a whole bunch of ideas and they work on the wrong projects you know i mean and and that and in the beginning i think it's not a bad thing to work on not the most ideal project that's fine because you learn the process and then i notice our students after they work on a project or two they get a lot more business-like and a lot less emotional about it because it's a bit of work to work on each project and they pick their projects more carefully but if you can work on a project that maybe wasn't ideal, but it got you that experience, I think that's all good. Um, oh, okay. And then the second part of your question is, what's the best way to protect all your ideas while sharing them with InventRight? Thank you in advance. Thumbs up. Thank you. Um, so, yeah. So when you become a student, we sign an NDA. Everything our students share with us is confidential. If a coach is like, hey, here's, you could change that, make it even better like this. You own everything. We don't take a percentage. It's all confidential. We sign an NDA signed by Steven and myself for the co-founders, covers everybody in the company. You need to be able to say anything to your coach if you're hesitating. Occasionally, it's very rare. We'll get a student and it's like, and they're like, it's bizarre. And they're like, oh, I, I don't know if I can share my idea with the coach. It's like, well, you got the NDA. It's like, usually we don't, like we've talked to people enough before they sign up, they're not like that. But we got a couple recently. It's like, ah, uh, dude, you're gonna need to share your idea with your coach. We signed an NDA. Look at our reputation. You don't see anybody complaining about us. Nobody's saying we stole your idea. You got to get over it, you know. Um, so yeah, so that's. But it's a good question. I'm not talking about you, Scott, and getting over it. I'm talking about the, these rare people we get once in a while. They sign up, and then they're the coach is like, Andrew, I can't. It's the second meeting. They still haven't shared their idea with me. I'm like, what? And I'm like, I'll call them. I'll talk to them. You know, and, and then they'll, they always get comfortable then. They just needed somebody to talk to them. Um, William, thanks for the thumbs up. Thank you, everybody, for the thumbs up. Appreciate it. Um, Will Will of the Maker was is their handle. LOL, missed my question. Oh, did I? Sometimes, let's see. I don't. I see a message that was retracted from Will. Let me page up, Will, and see. And see that I missed a question from you, Will. Um, Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, I do see it now. Um, yeah, I did miss it. Sorry about that. Uh, Will said, how many licensing deals of simple products like injection molded products before I should think about getting for a more complex product, including plastic electronics, possibly an app as well, in terms of having enough experience to not miss something or mess up a potential big deal? Okay, so he's saying basically, how many simple products should I do for going for a more complex one? You might, once you realize the, you're working on some simple products, go, I don't ever want to work on difficult ones. Um, I would say one is fine. If you want to work on one, get your experience with one simple product and go, I really, I know this project's more complicated, but I want to work on it. At least then you have a contrast. You, I worked on this simple one. I saw what was easy, what was hard. Now I'm working this tough one. Oh crap! I got to research more manufacturing than I ever did with that thing. Well, that sucks. Or, or I don't, I didn't mind it, you know. So if you work on one simple one, I think you earn the right to then, under you understand the licensing process. So if you worked on a more a complicated one, then um, you could figure out if that's what you want to be doing. But don't work on complicated ones just because they're complicated. I would, if you had a complicated one and you had one another product that was just as good and simple, like why would you pick that one? You know, but because people get emotional, they're excited about it. But, you know, and then people have a hard time gauging what has more or less potential, you know, as well. But you can look at the marketplace. So, Will, I would say after you work on one, 
simple one. You earn the right to work on a complicated one because you learn the licensing process. So thanks for drawing my attention that I missed your question. Terrible, terrible, Andrew. Um, Amanda said, after you sent a company your sell sheet and virtual prototype, how long should you wait before following up? Well, usually the virtual prototype's in the sell sheet, but okay. How long should you wait before following up? Should you call or email? How do you keep the momentum going with them without being annoying? Yeah, good question. I would say it's okay to follow up in 10 days, um, but I would wait at least 10 days. I would utilize LinkedIn, email, and phone, all three of those. Um, and Amanda, if you're new, um, you're not reaching out to one or two. You're reaching out to 20 or 30. Okay, there's some projects. You only have 12. You really, you know, I, I talk to new students all the time. They're like, oh, you know, yeah, these, this is it. And I'm like, no, it's not. You got eight companies there. I looked at your product instantly. I thought 30, you know. You, so we would guide you to make that list bigger, make 30. Um, now, and, and hey, if it's only 12, it's because your coach verified. Yeah, you're right. It's limited. This is more limited. So Amanda, um, one of the things I'm going to say with regards to what, what is our theme today, your success plan and everybody's success plan, you should never be working on a project for one company. You bother to make a sell sheet, you file the provisional patent, you send to one company, really? So um, one of the things that will make it easier for you so you're not as anxious or you're not getting frustrated is when you've got 30 companies and you reach out to a company, 10 days is no big deal because you're reaching out to more companies. And then by the time you come back around to this company, now it's been two weeks. Okay, now I'll follow up. So keep yourself busy. And then when you become pro and you're like, hey, I got a full-time job, but I can work on two projects at once. You're following up with enough people that it takes you that long just to get back around to them. But when you work on just sending to one or two companies, you're sitting there just staring at your email, thinking about it. And that's that's not a recipe for success. So that is our theme today is your success plan. So that would be your, my success plan for everybody and Amanda. So great questions, Amanda. Um, yeah, Will, I got to your question. Great. Let's see if I get a few people here that I haven't. Um, uh, push up four says maybe they're new patents expire question mark question mark question mark um yeah patents are 20 years or so um i forget it's 21 or something if you file provisional but but provisional patents provisional patent applications those are just a placeholder push up that's uh something that you need to learn about watch more of our videos uh, on our youtube channel about that and it's it gives you a year to fish off the pier. It gives you a whole year to be able to say patent pending for $60. Wow, that's amazing. And that is never really a patent. It's just a placeholder that if you later file a patent, you can reference that provisional to get that filing date. So if you're new and a bunch of the others might be new too, that's something you need to, to, to uh, pay attention to. Um, but you got a whole year to see if there's interest. But yes, patents do expire. Um, uh, but you know, how many people license a product where the product sells for 20 years? Not many, right? But you can keep it alive. If you do a new version of it, you keep it alive, company licenses that new version, you can keep it alive for more than 20 years. But to think that every product you license is gonna sell for 20 years, I mean, how many products sell for 20 years, guys? I mean, some sell for three, some sell for five, 10, 12, what have you, it's all over the map. Um, but, but to think that, Every product, just because the patent's 20 years, therefore the product's going to sell for 20 years. None of you said that, but I know some inventors assume that, or it's subliminal, and the patent attorney is trying to give that perception. You know, oh, great, I'm protected for 20 years, but it's just 20 years of nothing if you don't license it. Um, okay, uh, John said, awesome shirt. Thank you, John. Um, Push-up says, okay, uh, thanks. Uh, you're welcome, Will. Uh, uh, Sava G said, please read my comment. I beg you. Okay, I think I answered some of your questions, but I'll, I'll go back and answer another one. Um, yay, here in Greece, I had a revolutionary idea on a product at a dental, uh, dental hygiene, has to do with dental hygiene, and a patent office told me it's better to file as a design patent than a utility is 50-50-ish. It will be accepted. <laughs> yeah. You can always get a design patent accepted because it's freaking useless most of the time. 
So uh, I have a hard time believing the patent off. So yeah, you, you guys, I could file a patent on any product any of you have and get it accepted 100% of the time, a regular utility patent. If you put some weak claims in there, it, and this isn't the type of thing you would patent, but if you say it's a pink pencil with purple polka dots, exactly 2.5 millimeters in diameter with a purple swirl, that's, that's you don't protect an invention like that, but that's not how that works. But what I'm saying is, if you're so specific on what you're protecting, they'll be like, sure, you can get that, but people can just go right around it, right? So for the Greek patent office to say, get a design patent, you'll guarantee it's granted because a utility patent, you know, they may or may not grant it with good claims. It's like what they're saying is get a useless design patent that is just a picture and we'll give it to you, but it's useless. And the same thing with the utility. I can guarantee that every single one of you will get a patent and I could make that happen if I throw some ridiculously narrow claim in there, you know, that is so, you know, well, like, well, that's not really going to protect you, but you can have that. It's so specific. They'll give it to you, you know, so that is, if that gives you some perspective on how patents work, hopefully that's helpful. So yeah, that was a stupid ass comment, Savaji, that the Greek patent office stated. Um, and also a Greek patent isn't very useful. Um, you know, most of our international students that are licensing in the U.S., Canada, or Europe. Um, and so I would just file a U.S. provisional patent application and be proud. Hey, try to license it in Greece. It's less likely that you're going to license it in Greece. But nothing wrong with that. If, if a company in Greece wants to license a product from you, great. But you never want to limit yourself when you're a company like Greece or get a lot of students that are in Australia or different things, you know, this, those companies in these countries aren't as used to licensing. Also, they're very small countries. So, you know, if you license to a U.S. company and they're selling it, or let's say it's, a, say it's an Asian company and they're big in the U.S. and Canada and they're going to sell it in U.S. and Canada, great. You reserve the rights to license it in Greece. If you can do another deal with a company in Greece that wants to license it, that's fantastic. But I would never make that my main focus. If you're in Greece or Australia or some smaller country where their population is smaller, you do not limit yourself to your home country, okay? You're always trying to license it in Europe and more specifically in the US and Canada, okay? Totally okay to try to license your home country, but if you're only reaching out to Greek companies, oh my God, you will never be successful. You will not be successful. Or if you're in Australia, Australia is a huge country, but not a lot of people there. And they have kind of a uh, uh, who are you kind of, attitude. You're not a big company. Why would I license from you? That's still a fact, but Australians are super creative. So now could you license Australia? Absolutely. There's some, was it Zuru or whatever? It's a very innovative company that, are they New Zealand or Australia? I forget. Don't quote me on that. So fine to try to license your home country, but if you're not reaching out to US, the US and Canada, you are not doing it right and you might as well quit now. That's, that's what I'm going to say. Um, U.S. companies are the most open to licensing. Um, if you guys could type in your thanks, a bunch of people are typing in thanks you so much. Um, I'll answer this one last question. And then if you guys could type in your thanks, I'd be appreciate it. And if you give me a thumbs up, if you haven't, looks like I have more thumbs up than we have people live on now. So that's cool. Um, what was this last question? Uh, Darren, do patents really protect your invention from manufacturers in China? Yeah, because so patents protect you in the country in which they're filed. Okay. So a patent, will, if you get a U.S. patent, it will protect you in the U.S. And let's say if somebody was in blatant violation of your patent, could you possibly stop a Chinese company from importing it and selling it in the United States? Yes. Okay. Um, so, but a patent, a U.S. patent doesn't protect a company from knocking it off and selling it in China, right? You know, it protects you in the country in which you file it. I know we got some new people, some experienced people, so it's always good and helpful to cover some of the basics. Stephen and I were talking about that. He's their co-founder. Like we get, we've been answering these questions for 23 years, but there's a lot of new people all the time. So we got to answer these basic questions too, you know? So a patent protects you in the country in which you have filed it. Okay. Um, everybody, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this as I always do. Um, make sure to subscribe down below. Check out inventright.com. Um, if you page up inventright.com, check out our free resources page and our um, 
uh, uh, inventions for sale page, a bunch of our students have products currently on the market. And each week this month in April, we're going to do a giveaway where we're going to give away three of our students' products. So if you go to inventright.com and you click on inventions for sale, there's a sign up thing at the top. I told them to kind of change it. And if you page down below, you're going to see a bunch of our students' products currently on the market. Enter that giveaway. Every week, we're going to give away three of our students' products, right? Which is pretty freaking cool. And we'll ship it to you directly from Amazon. And so enter every week and take a look at some of the products that our students have licensed. And that's just like uh, some of them. And as it goes on and on, it's pretty, pretty freaking cool. So check that out and um, take care and I'll catch you guys next time. See you. Bye.